0: The following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Here's a question that some of you might have heard if you've ever been through a job interview. It goes something like this. I can even imagine a pulpit search committee asking a candidate this question What gets you up in the morning? It's it's a bit of a colorful, if a little corny, way of asking what motivates you. uh, Why do you do what you do? What drives you? So, how would you answer it? What would excite you to get out of bed in the morning? A party? Project? An appointment, perhaps a certain person that you plan to see that day. Now, how does Jesus, our Savior, answer that question? What was Christ's motivation for ministry? Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew gives it to us in our text this evening. Call to mind all that Christ has done so far in Matthew's gospel in these first nine chapters. The eternal Son of God set aside the outward show of His infinite splendor, glory, and might, taking to Himself a human nature, and that in a low condition, in a hard life, to do what? Matthew told us in chapter 1, verse 21, The Son of David, our King, has come to save His people from their sins. After identifying with His people in His baptism and then in His wilderness trial, As his ministry began, we found him dispensing wisdom and performing miracles of healing and deliverance. But again, the question presents itself, why was he doing this? What drove him? What was his motivation in all of this? What drives him still as he intercedes on our behalf before the throne of his Father? The answer to that question is instructive to us as we follow him in our ministry as a church today because Christ's compassion for sinners is the gospel model and motivation for the church's ever-expanding ministry. Again, Christ's compassion for sinners is the gospel model and motivation for the church's ever-expanding ministry today. We'll consider this truth about Christ and His ministry in and through His people in two parts this evening. First, you have Christ's compassionate ministry described for us in verses 35 and 36. And then second, you have Christ's expanding ministry pressed upon us as a directive, which he gives in verses 37 and 38. Those are the two parts. Looking at verses 35 and 36, if you would with me, Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, or when he saw the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. These two verses present for us a description of Christ's compassionate ministry in Galilee. It's recorded in in Matthew in these first nine verses Chapters of his gospel. Verse 35, and then if we break it down into two more parts here, presents Christ's kingly program in this ministry. And then verse 36 records specifically Christ's compassionate observation in his ministry, which followed the completion of this opening phase of the program, which we'll consider here. Matthew had introduced Uh, This Galilean ministry back in chapter 4, verse 23, with very similar language, almost identical words to what we see here in chapter 9, verse 35. This summary statement signals to us the close of this section of Matthew's gospel. This section that contains Christ's definitive kingdom teaching and preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as a record of his early miracles of healing, which attend that teaching and preaching and confirm the truth of his gospel message. Thus, it's fitting that the summary of his kingly program is a description of the ministry of the word attended then and confirmed by miraculous healing. Notice the emphasis on the word ministry. The miracles serve Christ's primary purpose in his program. That statement in verse 35 describes three things about Christ's kingly program. Simply put, the where, the how, and the what. The strategic reach, where it is he's going, and then the delivery method, how it is he's, uh, he's prosecuting his program, and then finally, the definitive content, his message that he's bringing to these places where he's going. In the first place Notice how Christ strategically reached all the cities and the villages. His itinerary was focused on people, but also comprehensive in scope as he went wherever the people were. You see, gospel ministry, what we do is people ministry. In certain corners of Christendom, I think of the Delta. It's a sad situation in Mississippi. There are churches that are shutting down for lack of people. Local populations are moving away. uh, They're changing. There's just nobody there anymore. Uh, And there's sorrow whenever an historic church closes. But, and this is a hard truth, there's no tragedy if there's no people around to populate those churches. This is just history rolling on. Precisely the opposite is happening here at Antioch, isn't it? Rather than people leaving, the Lord is bringing tens of thousands of people into the South Carolina upcountry, the historic bounds of Antioch's ministry, we might put it. And we're here for it, aren't we? That's why we're doing what we're doing in these last three years. We need to be here for it. It's strategic as Christ is strategic in his ministry. To divert our attentions from gospel ministry in this place would be a failure of strategy. It would be a failure of Christ-likeness in our mission as a church. That's the argument that Dr. Piper and I made to our presbytery, and it's the reason why we have men such as Mr. Johnson and others who are faithfully serving above and beyond as temporary elders as we get off the ground. Where did Jesus go? He went to the people. And so we go to where the people are. The second feature of Christ's kingly program described here is the how, what I said is the delivery method of the program. Christ's ministry was a didactic and hortatory ministry of the word. What that means is, boys and girls, that Christ came just as it says in the Bible here teaching and proclaiming, that is, preaching a particular message for God's people in their religious meetings, in their synagogues, where they met together uh, for worship. Christ did not come to buy up land or to lead a political revolution, to produce art or music or theatrical productions, or to set up a marketplace, as good as all those things might be. He came in laser-focused on doing one thing— Ushering in the kingdom of heaven by means of teaching and preaching. He came to renew, strengthen, and energize God's covenant community as the church. And literally in church settings, as I said, in synagogues. The miraculous healings that he performed, as sensational as they might have been, served only to confirm his identity and ministry as God promised and as God given, as properly messianic, as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which he claimed to be. But he did not come as a medical doctor, and he certainly didn't come as a mere miracle worker. Rather, he came as a teacher and as a preacher of the gospel explaining and applying God's word in such a way as to show forth the kingdom of heaven and to call men to faith in God and repentance from their sins, sin which had woefully infected the religious community through the false teaching of the Pharisees and their scribes. Why do you admire Jesus? Do you admire Christ? As so many seem to do today, simply because his teaching produced in time outward shows of political justice, of artistic beauty, and of, of uh, great culture and architecture and all these wonderful things that we uh, celebrate in uh, Western civilization and wherever the gospel has gone forth. Or you admire him first and foremost for what he actually did as our savior and king in his life? Preaching and teaching as the greatest church reformer of all time. How did Jesus accomplish his mission as we read it here in this verse? He accomplished it by teaching and proclaiming or preaching the kingdom of heaven and the gospel of that kingdom, the good news of that kingdom. And that brings us to then our third feature of Christ's kingly program, and that is the what. What was the defining message that makes Christ's ministry admirable and worthy of our attention this evening? Christ came teaching and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. This is what the miracles confirm. That Christ has come bearing good news of restoration. The good news that was announced by the prophet Isaiah when he said, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. That's kingdom language. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. That redemption language is conversion language. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. That is good news indeed. What too many of Christ's hearers did not understand, however, is that this kingdom, which is utterly unlike the political kingdoms of this world, will be brought forth in righteousness. The righteousness of Christ who accomplishes salvation on our behalf by his perfect life and sin-atoning death on the cross. That... uh, that he will bear forth in us the fruits of righteousness as the kingdom takes hold of the hearts of men by the spirit of Christ, applying this gospel, God saves sinners. What was the message? What was the defining content of Christ's ministry? It was the good news, the gospel of the only kingdom worth talking about. That kingdom which draws men uh, As expressed by Isaiah, again, in these words, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Incline your ear and come to me, says the Lord. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return. That's covenant language again. Return to the Lord, and he will have what? Compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will save you from your sins. God's compassion, then, which Isaiah spoke about, which Zechariah spoke about, is revealed in our text this evening in verse 36, where we have a record of Christ's compassionate observation. Look at that verse with me again. Look at verse 36. We read, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. After having completed the first phase of his kingly program described in verse 35, Christ reflects upon what he's seen and he feels compassion for the people. Who? The people that he saw on the mount. The people that he saw in the cities and in the villages and in the synagogues. This verse here is an important verse because it serves as something of a narrative hinge between sections. We're walking through a doorway from phase one into phase two, if you want to put it that way. We're looking back on Christ's very successful first phase of earthly ministry in Galilee, where he's uh, becoming famous as people are hearing about him. And now we're anticipating going into the next phase uh, where... He'll begin to face a bit more opposition, where the Pharisees are going to ramp up their activity and coming against Him. What Christ observed and what Christ felt, as recorded here in verse 36, is important for understanding why Christ and His disciples are going to persist through this second phase of increasing opposition and even beyond that. Like a watchful parent noticing something off about a child, Jesus could detect spiritual misery among the people because like a parent, he had a special love for these whom he beheld. He's seen them and they are unwell. You parents, I know that you've experienced this and you grandparents as well, you you see one of your little ones unwell and you know what that does inside of you. Now it tears you up. While Christ has seen these people, they are unwell. They are distressed and dispirited. Some translations have it harassed and helpless. I would put it weary and beat down. That's what he sees in the people. Something has happened to them that has left them in a sorry spiritual condition. And Jesus uses actually Old Testament pastoral or, or shepherding Uh, language to compare them to sheep without a shepherd. Sheep, like our little ones here with us, who cry out in the service sometimes and need some help, are truly very needy creatures, aren't they? Once lost, sheep cannot find their way back to the fold. When they're in trouble, this is what sheep do. They throw themselves on the ground and begin to wail or bleat and then eventually just give up. Does that sound at all familiar to you parents? as you deal with your little ones, or as you watch over your little grandchildren even, what do they do when they get frustrated? Very frequently throw themselves down and cry out. That's what sheep do. So what would happen then to sheep without a shepherd? The same thing that would happen to, God forbid this, but that, that would happen to distressed and dispirited toddlers without loving parents. The description here in verse 36 is one of desperation, even depression, due to deprivation. No shepherd, no help, ultimately no life. That's the problem Jesus has identified. But Christ was born in Bethlehem to shepherd God's people, as Matthew 2, verse 6 tells us. And he makes his compassionate observation here in Matthew 9, 36 the way that he does precisely because he has come to reverse the damage done by bad shepherds, by neglectful and abusive shepherds. What the prophet Ezekiel condemns in Ezekiel chapter 34, that which kindles the wrath of God in Zechariah 10, verse 3, which we just read. What Christ observed was the spiritual deprivation and depression of the people And it is that special love which Christ has for these distressed and dispirited sinners that then motivates him to act. That's what gets him up in the morning, we might put it. What Christ felt was compassion, but not this kind of mild, sentimental sympathy kind of compassion. He felt a true shepherd's compassion for these people, for his sheep. He felt the deep paternal affection which a virtuous, noble, and tender-hearted father would feel for his own children. A, we might say, visceral, gut-level compassion is the word that's used here. In terms of motivational power, no other personal force can match it. And really, no obstacle can get in the way of this kind of feeling, of this compassion once it takes hold of somebody and moves them to action. He felt this compassion when he had observed their condition because these sheep, these people whom he cared about, were in distress. They were in dire need. And he alone, Christ alone, was sent to, indeed was able to address their need, to do anything about it. For those of you who are preparing for ministry, I know there's a handful of you here this evening, men, and for those of you men who wish to serve in Christ's church in more formal and official capacities, if we can put it that way, you need this kind of compassion for Christ's people, for Christ's people who are in the church, but also for Christ's elect who are as yet outside of the fold who are out there in our communities and even in our families. You need compassion for sinners, for those whom God has drawn visibly into the church and those whom he intends to draw but has yet to do so. You must feel a compassion like this for the lost sheep of Israel, the suffering sinners. So how can you nurture such a compassion? Now this is, I use the word nurture, but this is really a nature thing. This is not something that you can muster up uh, by force of will. I had to deal with this a number of years ago when somebody lovingly confronted me after I spoke a careless word. I'm talking 15 years ago. If you love the word, if you love the Lord, and you love theology and everything that comes with it, but you find yourself inconstant, that is halting and stumbling in your love for sinners or for people, then pray for God to effect the necessary nature change to make you more like our compassionate Savior. You need this trait of His in your ministry. And consider this. It was for devotion to the Father. It was for perfect faithfulness to his mission. And it was for true compassion for sinners that our Savior suffered the torments of God-forsaken crucifixion and death on Calvary's cross. Indeed, it was the Father's compassion, the Father's love that Christ himself shared by nature and expressed in his ministry upon which we hang all our hopes and which we ought to emulate then as a model in our own ministry to which he calls us. This is true not just for the men preparing for ministry, but for each and every one of us who seek to glorify our God and enjoy him. We must have this love, this intolerable burden, some might say, for sinners. So that leads us to verses 37 and 38 now as we consider Christ's expanding ministry. That is specifically how he frames and launches his ministry as it expands now to include his disciples, not only as followers and students following him along, but now as co-laborers and ministers that he's about to send out. This too is actually tied up into Old Testament uh, shepherding language, the shepherd motif for leadership in the Old Testament. On the verge of entering the promised land, for example, we see it in a few places, but this is the most prominent. That's probably what Matthew has in mind as the Spirit's leading him to describe Christ's words here. But on the verge of entering into the promised land, in Numbers chapter 27, Moses asks God for something, and more properly, for someone. Moses pleads with God. He beseeches the Lord to appoint a leader for the people. And this is what he says, lest they be like sheep which have no shepherd. Like Moses, Jesus at this, one of these hinge points in Matthew's gospel, Jesus recognizes the need and inevitability of an expanding ministry in the promised land, we might say. And he takes action for the good of the people for whom he is concerned. Look at these verses in Matthew's gospel with me starting at verse 37 again look down at it then he said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few therefore beseech the lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest the action of verses 35 and 36 which revealed to us christ's compassionate ministry now dovetail into his discourse his teaching and his instruction to the disciples in verses 37 and 38, which make known to us not just his compassion, but his expanding ministry. In verse 37, Christ frames this expanding ministry by giving a two-fold rationale for what he's about to direct them to do in verse 38. He speaks authoritatively here as a teacher to his disciples. Then he said to his disciples... And though I advise usually against red-letter Bibles, I don't find them very helpful in general, it is the case that in Matthew's Gospel, Christ's direct speech, which, if you have a red-letter Bible, is printed in red, should grab your attention. Because that's usually what Matthew's focusing on. That's what he's doing here. How does Christ, the wise teacher and leader, frame the ministry situation before him, going into chapter 10? He changes metaphors. And now he frames it As a harvest ripe with opportunity. By characterizing the ministry situation as a plenteous harvest. He skips over the hard work of sowing and the largely invisible process of growth. Now it's harvest time. The sowing was accomplished by others. God has brought forth the growth. Now it's time to call in the reapers. Perhaps we see evidence of this in the enthusiasm of the people for John the Baptist's ministry in Matthew chapter 3, or perhaps we see it in the spreading fame of Christ, who's already been recognized in Matthew chapter 9 as the son of David, as the Messiah. Wherever there's a widespread desire for what Christ was doing, and what was he doing? Preaching and teaching the gospel. Wherever there's a desire for that, the opportunity, the harvest is ripe. Isn't it thrilling when missionaries come here? We've had a bunch come. And when they, when they tell us that they need co-laborers, that more missionaries in the field are needed, and, and the need is so great because the demand for more gospel preaching is great. But that's not all. That's just the first part of the rationale for what's coming in the next verse. Not only is the harvest plentiful, But there's a problem, and this is the second piece of the rationale for what Christ is about to tell his disciples to do. The problem is that the workforce is woefully puny. The workers are disastrously, even catastrophically, too few. Why is this a crisis in harvest time? You see, a harvest, if it's left unharvested, if it's just left in the field, will spoil and be wasted. It'll be destroyed by the elements, eaten up by locusts. But as this metaphor suggests, Christ has come to do for his people what Joel chapter 2, verse 25, predicted of God, to restore the years which the locust, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the the gnawing locust, every kind of locust you can think of, has destroyed. So what instruction does Christ hand down to the disciples in verse 38 as he takes action to bring in the harvest, to restore the years which the locust has consumed. Look at verse 38 with me. Therefore, for this reason I tell you, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. In these words, Christ, our wise king, moves beyond framing the expanding ministry as a harvest to now, launching his program of ministry expansion among his disciples. This is the what I call inaugural instruction which Christ gives. It is not what we'll see later, go ye therefore. It is not always be preaching and teaching and healing. He doesn't go there yet. He will go there, even in the next chapters. We'll see, Lord willing, next week. What he begins with as his inaugural instruction is, in fact, a call to prayer. Christ's goal is to secure the harvest of souls, a spiritual goal. And the very first action step he delivers to his disciples is a spiritual action step. That is to get on their knees and to pray to the Lord of the harvest. They are to pray to God the Lord of the harvest, and they are to petition Him to guarantee that successful ingathering of souls by sending out workers. Then Christ will enact phase one of the actual sending out in chapter 10. Think about this for a minute. I, I suspect that if I walked into uh, the boardroom of a Fortune 500 company as a marketing consultant, and I was hired to propose a plan for bringing a new product to market, that is, getting a, a new toy on the, on the toy store shelves or a new video game out there for people to buy or a new clothing line or, or whatever, you just name it. And I said, listen, guys, the first thing you need to do is to beseech the Lord of the market to send out workers into his market. I would be laughed out of that boardroom as a fool. Why is that? Because the world has no time for prayer. To the world, it looks like idleness. To the world, it looks like wasted time. But I hope that you and I will have time for prayer. For Matthew in his gospel presents Christ to us as a superlative, par excellence, wise, reformer king, correcting the erroneous thinking and theology of his day when he calls us to pray and to start with prayer. Indeed, Christ is perfectly wise in his leadership throughout Matthew's gospel as a teacher and as a guide of his disciples. To borrow a a 3D paradigm from Dr. Harry Reader, Christ carefully, in Matthew's gospel we see it plainly, uh, defined, developed, and deployed his followers as wise disciples and productive citizens of the kingdom of heaven, didn't he? Up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, we've seen him do the first two of those things. He has begun to define kingdom citizenship in terms of heart righteousness, and he has begun to develop his disciples as leaders for the restored covenant community as he's been bringing them along and having called them. Only at this point in verse 38 is he beginning to then deploy, that is send out, Uh, to uh, give instructions to the disciples as productive workers in the kingdom. In this verse, actually, if we think about it for a second, it has all three of these uh, 3D leadership features. Christ defines citizens of the kingdom of heaven as those who have faith enough to pray with proper affections, that is compassion, shaped by spiritual realities and concerns. For the soul harvest. Then Christ, in this verse, develops his, uh, his disciples, those citizens of the kingdom of heaven, by giving them instructions for the whole community that will shape and benefit them as individuals, making them mature in him for kingdom service to come, as they follow his instruction, of course. And then Christ deploys these citizens of the kingdom by setting them upon productive kingdom service that will unfailingly yield spiritual fruit, that is, the service of prayer to the Lord of the harvest. As a church, we have to follow Christ. We have to follow him, our prophet, our priest, our king, in this blessed direction to pray for workers to enter into his harvest. Nobody else is going to do what Christ sets forth here for the church for you all to do. Our government leaders, they're not tasked with praying for gospel workers. The marketplace and the academy, they're not going to pray for gospel workers. You know, Christian families might pray for gospel workers to be called up into service, but only if the church is obedient to Christ and therefore helps families to establish that habit. There's a reason, a profoundly wise reason, for Christ to privilege the spiritual work of prayer as his inaugural instruction here for his ministry expansion, as his first deployment directive given to his disciples, given to the church. But again, we ask, why? What motivated Christ to do this? We know from Hebrews 12, verse 2, that it was for the joy set before him. That is the joy of presenting to his Father a redeemed humanity as a gift, as a possession, that Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we know that it was for compassion, for the love of sin-sick men like you and me, that Christ taught the gospel, proclaimed the gospel, healed the sick, cast out demons on his way to the cross. And this compassion has direct bearing on the church's ministry today as we consider this first deployment directive that he gives in verse 38. Christ's compassion has direct bearing on your ministry, dear saints, here at Antioch Presbyterian Church, or wherever you hold your membership. Christ's compassion is the gospel model and motivation for the church's ever-expanding ministry. A true grasp of this truth will lead us as a church to be a few things. Vigorous in outreach, generous in hospitality, and diaconal care, persistent in service to our community, yes, conscientious in stewardship of our property and material resources, however great or small they may be, exuberant in our worship together, zealous for truth, nothing short of visionary in our expansion of all these things. But don't miss where this all starts. This is a spiritual effort in which we are engaged and we as a church have a uniquely spiritual mission that no other society within society has. This effort that we have, this privileged effort which we have before us, begins on our knees before the throne of grace. Seeking the indispensable, the utterly necessary help and blessing of God our Father through Christ the Son by the Holy Spirit. According to the word, what Christ's compassion for sinners graciously models for us and motivates us to do is to pursue ministry expansion by the spiritual work of prayer before anything else. Before we raise funds, before we knock on doors, before we schedule events, before we put together flyers or make mailers or even work on a website, before any of that, we begin with the most spiritual work to which God calls us, short of worship, and that is prayer itself. Is this surprising to you that Christ puts such an emphasis on it to make it the very first thing he tells his disciples to go and do? Are you startled by the premium that Christ seems to put on prayer in our text this evening? Perhaps are you ashamed at how little you pray in light of of what I'm saying? If what I'm saying is true, all other good and even necessary tasks are put on hold. Christ puts them on hold for this inaugural instruction, this definitional directive, for it is a defining feature of following Christ. We must not proceed with other action before we pray with faith in the Lord of the harvest, the God who hears us, to send out workers into his harvest to secure for himself that harvest of souls which Christ told us is ripe and ready. If we're truly compassionate, if we're truly concerned for the good of those around us, whom God has yet to call to himself by his word, then we will bring this petition to the Father. Lord, send out workers into your harvest. As we shall see next week, Lord willing, in and by Christ, this prayer has been answered over and over again, starting in his earthly ministry and extending forth through endless ages even to today. Let us pray. Lord, our God in heaven above, we bless your name and we thank you for your word, for its clarity, for how it reveals to us not only our shortcomings, but your good purposes of salvation and of saving grace. Lord, we pray that you would indeed raise up workers to enter into the harvest of souls which Christ has set before us as a great opportunity for your church. We pray that you would give us hearts to pray. That you would nurture in us a compassion for the lost. That you would even set us apart for this work itself. Lord, we dedicate ourselves to you and to your work this week. And we dedicate to you a portion of that which we've received, that this work might continue and continue earnestly and without hindrance. Lord, we pray that you would now be at work in our midst, deploying us, even as you've equipped us, to serve you with gladness and with joy and with great effectiveness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.